We continue co-host appreciation month here in the month of September this week as we are going to be bringing you a Monday Night Raw watch along from September the 22nd, 1997. I'm your host, Dave Rosenluth. You've tuned in to Kicking Out at 2. Thank you all so very much for hitting that download button, pressing play, and uh, giving us your time to go back in the years of professional wrestling, the glory years, the nostalgic memories that I have of my wrestling fandom. And uh, like I said, it's co-host appreciation month. Month, and uh, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the month, uh, I gave Justin and Dennis uh, two show, two topics, two different options to choose from. And uh, Dennis chose uh, a back to school special, which we aired uh, just recently, and last week's. Um, Watch along of the In Your House 3 pay-per-view event, main evented by Shawn Michaels and Diesel against Yokozuna and the British Bulldog. And this week, joining me on the phone line, uh, Justin's with me as he chose the September 22nd, 1997 episode of Monday Night Raw from Madison Square Garden. The first time Monday Night Raw was ever televised from Madison Square Garden. This is a, this is a, a, a milestone show in the history of wrestling and the history of Monday Night Raw. Justin, Welcome aboard. Good to be here. Uh, definitely interesting circumstances. Uh, got my coffee. Got my dog, buddy. Some water. And uh, a good Monday morning in front of me to uh, get this going. I feel like I sound like Eric Bischoff now out there in Wyoming. But, there you uh, go. I'm here, and I'm here in New Britain, Connecticut. Just uh, just in, enjoying the life. You got your green egg? Uh <laughs> No, unfortunately not. Uh, just a regular old, you know, charboil. Yeah, yeah. Nikki wanted to get me a green egg for Father's Day, and uh, she saw the prices because she follows Baron Corbin on on uh, on social media. And let me tell you something: you ever want to go to a barbecue at his house, you will not be disappointed. That guy can throw really? down on the grill, like, and he uses He's that. In Kansas City, I think too. That barbecue is. You know, quite famous in itself. That's barbecue. I don't recall. Well, Bears Smokehouse here locally in Hartford. There are technically Kansas City barbecues, so that's actually okay. obviously, as you know, very good. But uh, you know, most people are more familiar with like a Texas style, you know, more smoky, you know, barbecue. Or you know, some people I don't know. I'm sure you've had it. You know, Carolina barbecue as yep. well, um, which is what I prefer. I think it's a little more eclectic. Mm-hmm. Um, more vinegar based but yeah uh i'm sure i would imagine yeah kansas city barbecue that's um that's good stuff yeah you, sure. ever, you ever watch any his if you if you fo- go follow him on twitter i follow him on twitter and instagram so does nikki and that guy throws down in the kitchen man between ribs and brisket and short ribs and steaks and dry aged steaks like i mean i'm telling you that if you ever want to have a have a good good piece of meat make sure that you go see him he, he definitely throws definitely throws down and he knows his he knows his good ratio between the the, the meat and the liquor because you know with with, okay. with a good bourbon and a good steak and etc so i mean definitely definitely go give him a follow he's uh he's, he's an interesting follow nikki nikki will watch a video in bed and then she'll look at me she's like look what baron corbin just did and she'll be like oh we wow. gotta do that and i'll be like nikki we need a thousand dollars to get a green egg first of all okay but i think we're actually going to order some of those dry rubs that he uses he he, he, he awesome. yeah. yeah but anyhow I, we're, we're, it's, it's not a cooking show it's 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 a, it's a pro wrestling podcast even though we got a little wrestling flavor to it so before we get started while you know while we uh while we search for it you go to uh 
WWE Network, make sure you're logged in, and then you're going to go to Monday Night Raw on the so on the left side space bar, and click on that, and you're going to click on the year, 1997, so scroll all the way to 1997, and then once you get to 1997, you're going to scroll on the date, it's September the 22nd, 1997, the show runs 1 hour, 30 minutes, and 8 seconds, um, and uh, while you guys are doing that, Justin, why don't you tell me why you chose this particular Raw for us to cover and watch along for him this week? Um, you had touched upon it uh, a little bit earlier when you opened. Um, it's one of the you know more historic milestone shows, not just in Raw history, um, but in, in the history of WWE and pro wrestling in general. Um, a lot of big happenings took place on the camera and behind the camera. Um, when you look back at the history of Stone Cold Steve Austin and the star, the superstar, the global icon that he's become today, uh, um, you know, one of his biggest, um, you know, acts, that one of his biggest dastardly acts uh, took place that night. It was the very, very first time that he stunned. Mr. McMahon, Vince McMahon, um, the broadcaster at that point, um, and doing that in front of an audience at Madison Square Garden, I think was by design, as I'm sure I'll say multiple times throughout this. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, again, that was that was a, um, a big deal in terms of, you know, elevating Steve Austin. Um, also on that show, uh, Cactus Jack. Uh, made his debut on uh, that program against Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, um, which, again, was something, you know, if you were an inside fan, you knew who Cactus Jack was, but at that point you would, you would submit it to the idea that, you know, Mankind and Dude Love were, were the predominant characters. Uh, so it was, it was kind of a dream come true and very perfect and be fitting for him to bring, you know, for Jack to debut at Madison Square Garden. So again, you know, those two things mainly um, in front of the camera, um, also behind the camera. This has uh, been reported to have been the, the day um, when uh, Vince McMahon had um, notified Brett the Hitman Hart that he was no longer going to be able to obligate or, you know, honor his uh, Brett's contract he had signed with him the year prior. So he was basically giving Brett the the freedom to go negotiate a deal with WCW, which we could go on and on about that. So obviously those, you know, that was a big deal, a big happening, at least behind the camera. So between those three, I think that's a that's a pretty stacked reason, along with you know reason number four, Madison Square Garden. Who knew that would be the fourth best reason why this was such an important RAW? Um, but yeah, to me that's that 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 makes this and you know a top five, top ten Monday Night RAW for sure. Yeah, like you said, Madison Square Garden, you know, being the fourth reason why, um, you know, this was such a huge event. I mean, for years, the the WWF at the time had its footprint on the garden, and there had been so many uh, memorable moments that were televised. Uh, but this is the first Monday Night Raw that was televised from uh, Madison Square Garden, the flagship show uh, of the WWF, which would eventually become the flagship show of today um, in WW, present-day WWE. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of funny that, you, that you, you think about it here for a minute. With all the events that had taken place prior, um, that, you know, Monday Night Raw, which at the time was four years in its existence, um, 
was finally being televised from Madison Square Garden. Now, I'm sure that because business was much different at the time, um, that they didn't have the capabilities to fill the building. But by this time in 1997, with the way business was going, or the way the whole industry was in general, it's safe to say that it, this was probably, the, the, the timing was right to finally pull the trigger to host an, an event of this magnitude like Raw from the Garden, would you say? Yeah, definitely. I think um, you know, I think the concept of the show was a more intimate, grittier feel, you know, given the name Raw. Um, and I think when you start there and then you have a hard time filling buildings as it is, um, you know, then, you know, they're entering, you know, through the mid 90s, that that lull period where it was difficult. Um and then, yeah, I think I think the main, one of the big reasons that they did do this was probably because they were they were seeing an uptick, you know, long before the eighty three weeks of ratings, you know, ass kickings was over, you know, WWE was was um, was winning on the streets, you know, I think the term is, you know, they were out there, you know, before anyone uh, knew it, they were they were starting to sell out arenas every night, and they were and there was momentum gaining underneath that no one was talking about. You know, us included. Mm-hmm. So I think the realization of, you know, I don't want to say this is the beginning of the Attitude Era per se, while it is a, you know, hallmark moment of it in terms of getting there. I think that going to the Garden in this year, 1997, you know, what many people herald as one of the great years in the history of wrestling. I think the uh, the idea that they could go there and sell it out was a, a telling sign for them. Um, to be able to run their biggest show in that arena sold out and a good sign that business was on the way up for yeah, sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into this watch along here. Hopefully by now everyone's uh, logged in, ready to go. Uh, Monday Night Raw, September the 22nd, 1997. One hour, 30 minutes and eight seconds oh. on the WWE Network. Uh, I'm sorry, what was Hold that? On. No, just our, our babbling got me... Uh, booted out of the spot where Monday Night Raw, I had it paused. So keep going, I'll get, I'll get myself okay. back right. there. Okay, alright, you, you just let me know um, when you're ready. It's not even, um, you might hear some background noise no, there. No, that's, that's alright, that's alright, this is, you know. Alright. No, no, no big deal. Um, yeah, yeah. No, you're good now. You're good? Alright. So, we, we my, my screensaver on my TV kicked in, and then gotcha. I brought myself back in, it was, it was on the, the prior screen, so. Gotcha. Ready to roll when you are. All right, let's do it, everyone. Monday Night Raw, September the 22nd, 1997. When I say play, you're going to hit play from time to time. I'm going to maybe turn the audio up a little bit on my end and, uh, you know, play play some of the audio for you from time to time. But nonetheless, um, we're going to watch Monday Night Raw in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, hit play. The iconic open of the World Wrestling Federation, the most revolutionary this is the force. One that I don't remember in sports uh, entertainment. I like the now the, the guy's voice. I remember kind of like how all the stats and stuff, but these these I remember big time the these Stone Cold shots. Yeah, we see the um, the, the the garden memories here of Hulk. Superstar Billy Graham. 
some of the early memories of Madison. I like how they like they made this show that much more special by you know really emphasizing some of the the, the historic moments that took place in this building. Yeah, absolutely. Iron Sheik throwing in the towel. Or, I'm sorry, Arnold Skolan throwing in the towel for Bob Backlund after losing to the Iron Sheik. And then we see Bruno Sammartino and the, the the late Gorilla Monsoon. Uh, and the match that everyone talks about. Everyone in the business was at the Snooker Cage match. <laughs> yeah, Bob. Uh, Tommy Dreamer. Uh, Mick Foley's the famous one, obviously. Yeah, Mick Foley's the <laughs> one that really put that one on the map. Then everyone else says they were there. <laughs> yeah. We see highlights of WrestleMania 1 as well as WrestleMania 10. Cindy Lauper and all the, the the match made in heaven, Macho Man, Miss Elizabeth from SummerSlam 1991. And there's this iconic shot here of Shawn Michaels jumping off the ladder. And right here, we talked about him earlier, Brett the Hitman Hart returning at the 1996 Survivor Series to take on uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. More great shots from the uh, some of the, the, the more memorable moments from Madison Square Garden. The alley fight between Pat Patterson and Sergeant Slaughter. I thought that was a, the, I thought it was a boot camp match. Or maybe it was a boot camp match. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, I feel like that was what they built it as. It's the famous one, at least. Maybe, I mean, I, I know that was a big rivalry that had multiple matches in it, so. Yeah. <clears throat> Undertaker. Coming down from the yeah. ceiling, looking like Batman. This is the the iconic open for Monday Night Raw that that uh, really defined Raw is War at the time. Let's play the audio for this. Pyrotechnics display the, the raucous New York City Madison Square Garden crowd. I remember now. I don't know what your your memories are, but um, I remember for weeks, dare I say, even a few months, that they built this Monday Night Raw like it was a pay per view because it was being held in Madison Square Garden. I mean, at least on the dirt sheets. You know, that was the first time where I had heard that they were even thinking of doing the, the, the angle with Austin and McMahon, with Austin stunning McMahon. Um, but in my brain, as an old school wrestling fan, I was trying to picture what Raw in Madison Square Garden would look like. Because most televised events that took place at the Garden, you had that one small straightaway aisle that was directly in front of the hard camera that would, yeah. the, the guys would come out. So I was I was picturing this Monday Night Raw being very similar to an old event taking place in Madison Square Garden, but just a little bit more life. I think that was the Rosati sisters, if I'm not mistaken, that were just sitting in the front yeah. row. Bobby Heenan's friends. And here we go. The nation of domination, the rock, Rocky Maivia leading the way with D'Lo Brown, Farouk, 
and Kama Mustafa. And then wait, who's behind Farouk? Um. Oh, Sergeant Slaughter. Commissioner uh, Slaughter. Kama. Yep. Yes, Commissioner Slaughter. It's pro- I think I think this is where he uh, he informs the rest of the nation that they have to go to the back. They have to leave the 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 ringside area. And this is we don't really see the 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 seeds of dissension between the Rock and Farouk just yet in this this time period, but no, it, it's it's creeping, but yeah, it's not quite there. Yeah, it's not quite there yet. And I believe the Rock is scheduled to face Ironically, former member of the Nation of Domination, one Ahmed Johnson. What did you think of Ahmed Johnson in the Nation? I thought, so it's weird. So, like, I'm probably the, the, the prototype of most fans my age at this time. I thought Ahmed Johnson, the character before he joined the Nation, was fucking awesome. Um, I dug his feud with Farouk. I thought it was a shoot. Basically, yeah, you know, those guys fucking hated each other, in my opinion. Um, but I don't know. Somewhere along the way, like when it, when you know, I, the, the terms you use now is that you know his you know his push got derailed, or you know he hit the glass ceiling, or whatever. Somewhere along the way, like that feud never really like materialized into anything bigger. And it was around that time again, not really understanding the inner workings of it but eventually I soured on the idea of him as a babyface and wanted him to join the nation like I you know I'd seen enough of him and Farouk and I wanted him to be a, like he was pretty much already like everything that those guys were except just not wearing you know the nation garb yeah um, very unto himself just didn't trust anybody um, you know and there was a sliver of the of the, the black militant attitude and uh that he that he brought to the table so but you know i I thought you know he was i thought he was cool um but as a member of the nation i thought it definitely wasn't as good as i envisioned it being um but i think that also showed you what type of guy or what type of talent he really was but Mm -hmm. as a fan you don't really understand that no you know 10 years old 11 years old however however old you know you were at this time i mean you know you, you don't have that kind of train of thought um I just remember, like you said, it felt real, the the rivalry that he had with Farouk um, and his injuries kind of, you know, plague that from moving forward. And then finally, when they did pull the trigger, um, it just didn't have the same intensity. I think it was one of those like too little, too late situations, even though he was hurt, um, you know, the, the, the rivalry... They didn't have their first one-on-one match till the Royal Rumble in 1997, and their rivalry started in the summer of '96. So, yeah. and it wasn't like it was designed that way, you know. Um, but his his injuries, especially with his kidney, um, caused that to uh, to to delay. And then, you know, they had the I guess you could call it a blow off um, at WrestleMania with him in the LOD against the Nation in the 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 Chicago Street Fight. But after that, it just it didn't have that same juice. So as a kid, as a teenager watching this, I can just remember in my mind feeling like, well, he needed to freshen up. You know what I mean? He needed something different. And and and, and I guess, you know, the whole if you can't beat him, join him mentality was where, I, where I'm kind of going with this here is that it, for me, I guess it kind of made sense that Ahmed joined the nation. Right. 
Right, um, exactly, and I was kind of in that boat too. Yeah, so that that that's where I was at that time. Um, and then as quickly as he was in, he was out. I don't know why. I've never really understood why they they quickly put him in the picture and then um, took him out. I honestly don't know. Um, I don't know if it was injuries or if it was, you know, uh, egos and personalities conflicting, but um, he was in the nation for maybe two months, if that, and then he was out. And then that's when The Rock comes into play, when he returns and, um, you know, had the what you could argue his, his career resurgence. If he didn't join the nation... Um, there's a good chance he wouldn't have been a, he wouldn't have been as successful. Yeah, for sure. And it's weird because like when these two guys, you know, I feel like Ahmed Johnson was like the the first draft drawn up of what The Rock was to be. Because like once, like when Ahmed first showed up, like a year prior, like he had the whole. You know, the, just the energy you would hear from Vince McMahon or Jim Ross or, you know, and the crowd too. He was over. Yeah. Like there was a, there was an there was a palpable energy to the guy that made him unique. Yeah. Um, and ugh, that was still pretty raw there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was pretty ugly. But, but um, again, it just didn't really seem like it, it just didn't seem to resonate. And for the same reason, it didn't really resonate with Rock either. They brought him out and Kate made him very charismatic. You know, blue chipper, you know, next guy in line type guy coming through the pipeline. Um, and obviously the, the, the personalities are the biggest difference. But um, to think that, like, Ahmed was kind of thought of in that same vein, minus the lineage, is, is very interesting. And to see, obviously, one of them make it to literally the top of the fucking world, much less wrestling, um, is pretty remarkable. I think the difference between both guys, it's a great point you make that, you know, Ahmed was kind of in that same boat um, in the way that he was pushed. I think the difference between both guys was was that um, Ahmed had more intensity, whereas Rock was a little too soft. Uh, yeah. And so Ahmed's intensity was like... <laughs> The best way I could describe it was was he was the ultimate warrior without the face paint. Like he was just he was very intense, but he also had this like he he had a good balance of being intense but also having this like badass, cool kind of vibe to him. Whereas Rock was Rocky Maivia, all smiles, high fiving. Like I said, he was pretty soft. Yeah, he wasn't really cool. Yeah, and so. Not- yeah, he, he didn't have that. Yeah, he didn't have that cool factor until you know eventually he grew into that role here in the nation. Roll yeah. River Plunge. That is actually an awesome move. Yes, still. And I he, think so. I and think. he gets the victory to yeah. advance into this intercontinental championship think tournament. About, think about that. Wherever Ahmed Johnson is, or wherever his real name is, Tony Norris. The day he dies, that he beat the Rock in, in Madison, Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Like there is, there is something to that. that yeah. And again, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mark for the, for the building, much less wrestling. So like, to me, like anybody who gets a chance to perform here, like this is like a big deal. Like that, I think going back to the, the, the opening of the show with the, the clips of all the historical moments, like that's, that just, that, that warms you up. You know what I mean? 
I want and, one of those jackets, the one of those jean jackets or one of those oh, uh, yeah. the, the varsity jacket that Jr's got on. Those, the, those they gotta have some of those stored in the warehouse somewhere. Yeah, they're probably like. I'm trying to think. Didn't they bring those back for like a an old school raw? No, they brought the. You know what they brought back? They brought back Vince's old blazer with the old oh, block WWF right, 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 yeah. logo. They yeah, had JR, right. they had Jr wear that one time, and Michael Cole and like I don't know. I just did. It didn't. I mean, it was cool looking at first, but um, yeah. Well, it's on Jr. That's kind of that's. Uh, I I can't even imagine it. I know that. I feel like when he did the Raw twenty five, he was just regular looking Jr. And yeah. Shane was the one. Yeah, no, you're exactly right here. As uh, we see uh, Pillman and Owen scheduled for later Intercontinental Tournament, Bret Hart and Goldust, as well as uh, an appearance from Shawn Michaels um, on this show. Crowd looks like they're uh, they're 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 anticipating something. Um, it's uh, the one thing too. I know we've talked. Oh, about wait this a minute. Thing. Here we go. Sorry to interrupt. Cut you off here. Go ahead. It looks like this is Steve Austin in the crowd. In the, oh, look at... This is crazy. Let's play the audio for this. You can have a Monday Night Raw in New York City without Stone Cold Steve Austin. Tonight, someone's going to get their ass whipped, and that's the bottom line, but God, Stone Cold set down. All right. Uh, yeah. Look, 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 he can't even... Look how many people are surrounding him. You can't even see yeah. him. Like, that's how on fire he was. That's how that's how crazy that, that... And, and, and and honestly, like, as a young fan, I was still very much on the Bret Hart team. So I didn't really care too much for Steve Austin. But either way, I didn't recognize that he was gonna be that they, that he was on the way up. No, same here. Same not here. until not until probably after Montreal did I realize like, okay, like who's next? Like who's filling that spot, you know? Yeah, look at this. And and that's when the no-brainer was Steve Austin. Yeah, um, look at this stupid shit here. Yeah, what is this? It's like a toy thing, a toy commercial? Yeah, Fink and Tim White and Sable. Look, yeah, I think it's some sort of like like laser tag gun. Oh. Or maybe it's a squirt gun, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. It's not like it's... It's not like that 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 karate fighters, but yeah, there's like a late there's like a, a light on it at the end, and then she does. Yeah, that. that's yeah. right. Laser, yeah. There you go. Yeah, I remember these. I think we used to have these. Really? I, don't I feel know. like I feel like I bought those. Really? I got those as a present. Maybe I don't I know. Maybe, wrong, you, right? maybe I had something like that. Maybe yeah. it wasn't that product, but, but something similar. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah like I said, I don't really remember. Um, outside. Now we're off PlayStation Five. PlayStation 1 presents Monday Night Raw. Oh, I know. Floyd Patterson, the chairman of the New York Athletic Commission. That's interesting that they that they uh, that they showed him on screen. I want they, they were big into doing that. Like, remember they did that in New Jersey for SummerSlam? They brought the governor out. Like, there was like... Oh, there with was, uh, there was, Tiger Ali? There was the, yeah, when they did like the Million Dollar Challenge and they gave her the belt. It was that first SummerSlam. And it was that first New Jersey show in like yeah. years. Because they, cause they like, hadn't run wrestling in, like, a decade or something like that. Yeah. I think that was maybe kind of on the same vein, showing him and stuff there. Um, just the more political glad-handing that you don't really notice then. 
We're seeing highlights here from uh, still shots from the one night only event from uh, the WWF. Uh, and this was where Shawn Michaels would win the European Championship over the British Bulldog just the, the Saturday prior. Um, actually, I did a, a recap of this event last year. Uh, I watched yeah. I watched this entire show for the very first time. Uh, have you ever seen this one before? I have once, and the entire I, show. I, yeah, the one thing that I specifically obviously remember is this match. Yeah, Sean and, and Davey were like all signs pointing to like as a fan, as a traditional fan. All and this is exactly why you get the, the trash in the ring and everything. All signs pointed to Davey Boy Smith beating Shawn Michaels. And there's some brilliance in just doing the opposite mm-hmm. that I think was presented here as a real, but again, as a fan, I was just like, dude, how does he lose in, in like in England? Yeah. You know what I mean? What but, I noticed um, about this show that was interesting was the fact that as a kid, Brett was portrayed as this evil, you know, wrestler in America, but everywhere else he went, especially in Canada, obviously, because that's where he's from, he was this hero. But on this show, he wrestled Undertaker, and the the fans in England, in Sheffield, were favorably on the side of Undertaker over Brett. And then, later in the night, Owen would wrestle Vader, and Owen was a babyface. Even though he, he was more popular than Brett on this show. You, the, the, the one fascinating thing about that show, when I watched it last year and then recapped it for this podcast, was the fact that the crowd reactions were just so strange for who they liked and who they disliked and who they were into. Like, they were into a tag team match with the Headbangers and the Los Bariquas. Like, nobody would, oh, give, it, nobody would give a shit about that on, on television in the States. But in England, they were, they were all for it. It was great. So if you ever get a chance, you yeah. can wa- watch that whole show. You'll be surprised that the reactions like there was even one point where like like I said Brett Undertaker was a baby face against Brett in that match and the crowd was mainly on Undertaker's side but then like later towards the match it's like they changed their mind and then all of a sudden they were they were booing both guys it was it was really strange man you gotta go back and watch it yeah I know definitely um just for I mean Brett Undertaker I know their 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 more famous matchup is the SummerSlam one which you know I think Undertaker has recently called one of his greatest matches ever. Yeah. Um, which interesting, to say the least, because Undertaker's career, especially post-2000, was littered with classics. But, yeah, um, yeah I, would, I, I don't recall the, 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 the reaction, at least for an Undertaker and against Brett, so I definitely have to check that out. Yeah, you'd be you'd be surprised when you watch that show, like how into it that crowd was, and maybe it's because it was like the first pay per view that they were getting. I don't know, but like it was just, I was surprised at just some of the reactions yeah. that some of those guys well, were I think getting. Still, like how, in some ways, how spoiled we get here, where like you just don't give a fuck about certain things, and you're just kind of are conditioned to look towards, you know, where the money is and who the top guys are and everything like that. Yeah. But like I remember specifically, you know, in terms of like on a parallel to that England show. The, I think it was the Crown Jewel event with um, Team Hogan versus Team Flair. That crowd, I've never like that crowd was so hot for that match. That that meant nothing. The yeah. match had no consequences, no stakes. Who cared? Very piecemeal together. It was a payday for Hogan and Flair. Huh? It was a payday for Hogan and Flair. For sure. Yeah. yeah. It was just so like. It was just so like bizarre how into the match it got, the fans got, to the point where like I was watching it, 
and I got into watching it because of just everything going on. It was like probably one of the better, well done, like you know, multi man tag team matches they had done in a while because of the the crowd was so hot for it. And I know it's you know mainly you know the, the garnish on that that spices it up is is Hogan and Flair, but it was it was it's it, it just speaks to like what you're saying, like especially on like internationally, like what the fans pay to see versus like what we don't really care about. It's a, it's a, it's all interesting, and it, it, you know, to see that that difference still exists between those two shows over twenty years later, you know, speaks to the the the, the very evolving and ever changing nature of wrestling fans. Yeah, I yeah, I mean, I I haven't watched that crown jewel match, but I'll have to go check it out. Um, yeah, yeah it's a, I just remember remarking like, "Wow, this this crowd is hot," and yeah. like. It just made the match better, and I remember at one point I was I sat down from doing what I was doing to be like, okay, like let's just let's see this through because these fans are really giving it a lot of love. Yeah, just like uh, the, the fans everywhere give this man here a lot of love, Undertaker. Um, while we well, while he's on the screen here, especially with with Vince conducting the uh, the interview, you've watched all the episodes of Last Ride. I've watched the, all the episodes of the Last Ride. I'm sure many that are listening to this have watched it. Um, me personally, I think he's got one more left in him. Um, and I'm referring yeah. to Undertaker. I think he's got one more. Um, as we see Shawn Michaels making his way out. Um, new European champion. Um, yeah, I, I personally, I feel like he's... Even though he kind of hinted at retirement in that last episode. Um, that he would want to go out in front of an audience. And the, the, the company would want to, you know, capitalize from a monetary standpoint on a... Yeah, like, a, like a, I've said. A red carpet retirement. Yeah, like I've said, you, you know, the, the metrics, whatever might be used, you know, the, the Undertaker's retirement, if this is what it was, drew no money, you know, little to no money. Um, and that, to me, is, I think, the the, the, the golden rules to, to put asses in seats and get matches in the ring. Um, and I don't think... Yeah, on that alone, I can't. I, I refuse to believe, and I'm usually wrong, but I refuse to believe that that his match with AJ Styles was his last match. I'm, like I said, they when they when they when we can and when there is able to be people in the crowd and an audience, a live audience to watch wrestling, um, the WWE is going to want to do a match um, with the Undertaker again, and if it's going to be as you know. What better? No superstar has ever gotten the quote farewell match, you know, other than the stipulations of if you lose, you retire. But what better guy to tag? This is his last match, everyone. This then with the Undertaker, especially given what we just went through with the last ride—five episodes of you know ups and downs and tremendous storytelling about a man we never really knew much about. Um, What better way to have the final chapter, the real final chapter of the last ride, than in front of a global audience and? A hundred thousand plus, you know, and every T-shirt and fucking hat and wristband you and necklace you could sell, you know, commemorating that event. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, that's so. Let me ask you. Obviously, it would be, it would be you know in, in front of a large audience at a WrestleMania. Okay, depending on where our society and our culture is with this coronavirus pandemic. Um, 
you know, we don't even know if next year's WrestleMania will have an audience. Um, and it's scheduled to take place in the the, the, the newly built uh, SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. Los Angeles yep. was the site of Undertaker's first WrestleMania match against Jimmy Snuka, which will be commemorated, you know, 30 years later. Um, so who gets the nod for the final match, the final chapter against Undertaker at WrestleMania? Um, I think there's only really two people. Well, not, there isn't only two, obviously. You could go with anybody. But I think just from a sensical standpoint, the first one's AJ. You know, I think they've kind of left some leaves out there that need to be turned over uh, when it comes to AJ Styles and The Undertaker. Um, so you could go AJ, or I think you could certainly go with The Fiend, Bray Wyatt. Um, I think there's a natural connection there. Those are probably the main two. And then I think an outside chance that I think everybody wants to see would be Sting. You know, if that could be a fit, if that could be made possible, that would be cool. Um, although very, very unlikely. So I'll, you know, that's an outsider's shot. But Styles and Fiend, mainly Styles, I think, is he's the, he is the comfortable lead, um, you know, amongst the pack for the last match of The Undertaker. Yeah, those aren't those are those are easy picks. I I, I kind of had them in my uh, my rotation of picks. I, I want to add Randy Orton to that mix uh, because of how on fire Randy Orton had been in the rivalry with Edge um, and just the, the the work he's been doing um, even during this pandemic um, and how he's really elevated himself as a top guy um even i mean he's already been a top guy but you know just he's really just cementing the fact that like he's one of the all-time greats and i feel like you know he's got so much left in the tank that that he would be another perfect choice to 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 do one final dance with undertaker yeah no i, I definitely i don't don't disagree with that either especially again given the way he's he's been uh you know booked and the performances he puts on and kind of just the overall sense of the stories that he's kind of telling right now with his, his character being the greatest wrestler ever, you know, again, the moniker of legend killer is, 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 is ever present, especially when you're standing next to Ric Flair and you're going after the big show and edge, yeah. um, you could, you could kind of, you know, create a, 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 a road of, of laid out bodies of legends on the way to the undertaker, if you will, to get to a WrestleMania. And they also fought in Los Angeles. Yeah, Randy true. Orton, Randy Orton's uh, WrestleMania streak-breaking attempt. So, yeah, Randy Orton is definitely one I would put in there too. Um, like I said, I think all signs point at this stage to if there is a match, it looks like AJ Styles is going to be the, the the beneficiary of that match. Um, as usual, plans can and often do change. So, um, I think there is certainly a plethora of. Uh, of talent, um, and I would. My question to you, though, is: Would you would you keep it to established talent? Like, would you keep it to talent that is more or less on that level, or would you would you put a last match of the Undertaker with a guy like, just for argument's sake, jeez, uh, uh, I couldn't like a Matt Riddle, like just 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 would you put it to a guy who has the who has who's got that come up? Or would you keep it to the established stars? See, that's tough because you know for the longest time, um, you know the, the 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 debate was, you know, who ends the streak, 
And when it comes to that streak, you know, most people wanted to give it to someone who, you know, was on that come up, like you said, that could use that sort of um, that rub to really get, you know, their their wagons moving um, up the ladder. And but then there's the argument of, well, what if we give it to this guy, but this guy busts in a year or two, then we just wasted the streak on this person, you know, for a long time, there were names like Sheamus and Randy Orton was a name, even though, you know, Randy Orton would become a bigger deal, obviously, than Sheamus. But there were a few names of guys that, you know, that that they discussed um, ending the streak with. I think even CM Punk was one of those names as well. And look what happened to him. He had a match with Undertaker at WrestleMania, which was a great match. But, you know, not too long after that, he would uh, he, he would head home and, uh, and, and walk away from the business. So um, you, you make the argument that, you know, maybe you should give it to someone who can handle it who can be established or who's already established and yeah. you know, they made that they made a strong case with Brock Lesnar and to this day look what's been look look at the way Brock Lesnar has been booked and has been positioned i mean if you think about it when Brock came in and returned in 2012 against Cena you know he didn't have Paul Heyman with him and yes the return of Brock Lesnar was a big deal but there was still something missing and then things started to come into place when they brought Paul Heyman back to be his on-screen spokesperson. And but there was still just something missing from him. It's like he needed something to just kind of get him over that hump and the streak would end up being it and he was the kind of guy that could be able to sustain the kind of heat um that that that, that streak brought. So in hindsight, you look back and you're like, well, Brock was the perfect choice because Brock was able to handle it. And so it was Paul Paul Heyman, who is the, you know, ultimate one man promoter, uh, was able to really, you know, ride with that streak to this day. I mean, it's still brought up in promos. The one in 21 and one breaking the Undertaker streak, eat, sleep, break the streak, you know, conquer, repeat. You know what I mean? Like, so I I, I think I, I would lean towards an established guy. Someone yeah, like a Ra- someone like a Randy Orton and AJ Styles, even you can make an argument, even a Bray Wyatt. Those are probably the three that I think would 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 be best served to to have that final match with him. Yeah, and I don't. Yeah, like and and as Brock is concerned, like you know that that's something missing. I think it was very it's, it got very formulaic very quickly with him. Even once Heyman jumped on board, like it seems like Brock, Brock was just there to put over guys. Yeah. And even I thought he wasn't going to be the Undertaker. Like, all right, like, all right, he's next. You know what I mean? Next, like he's going to he's going to get that big WrestleMania match. He's going to lose to the Undertaker. It's never happened at WrestleMania. Next, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then obviously they shocked us all. Um, but like I said, I felt like his trajectory was very plateaued before that, even because again he wasn't really doing anything spectacular. No. Until that point. Um, again, it, it just had this air of like, okay, he's just going to go in and have these money matches with these top guys, put some of them over, you know, and, you know, come in and out. Yeah. Um, so this, in many ways, I think hindsight being what it is, he needed to win that match. Yeah. And like that he was the guy that could handle it the best. I'm fully on board with that, you know, on top of the other, you know, business reasons to, to, to end it. Um, but I would say he is the undertaker. You know, he is the new Undertaker of WWE, assuming that the Undertaker is is, is, is done. You know, if the, the Undertaker is, by and large, even if he 
does wrestle one other match, he has entered a new, untouchable phase of his public career. Um, but the guy who's going to come in and out and be that attraction, you know, break the glass, if you will, to pull him out um, in an emergency is Brock Lesnar. That's his. That's Vince McMahon's new Undertaker. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. We, we, we talked over the last match, Nation and uh, LOD didn't really seem to be anything to write home about um, as we see Owen Hart making his way down to the ring, uh, accompanied by, uh, they don't look like New York City's finest, but um, this is for the, uh, the, 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 it's a tournament for the Intercontinental Championship after uh, Owen Hart broke Steve Austin's neck. Um, yes. At SummerSlam. Let's see if we could spot any, any uh, future future pro wrestling stars in those extras as cops. And I uh, can't really say that I, I do. Yeah, maybe maybe from some local indie fed in New Jersey or in Long Island, but that's about it. Um, but I, I always... know no FAFs in that escort. I always wondered, um, you know, Pillman was a member of the Hart Foundation, and he's wrestling Owen here. But they never really kind of, like, explained why Pillman kind of split off from them. It was just like he was doing his own thing with, with, with Terry Reynolds here, which, which to me, I borderline thought this was a shoot. <laughs> yeah, no, I, this was hot. This was a hot angle yeah. uh, for 97, for sure. Um, I think they just kind of... I think they just kind of wanted you to just believe, well, okay, he's... He's a fucking nut job. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of how they break him away from the Heart Foundation because he wasn't really a very descript character at that point. Yeah. With the Heart Foundation. I, I know you and I have had this discussion before uh, privately, and we, we, we tend to disagree, but I really truly feel like had Brian Pillman not passed away, he would have been a big staple in the Attitude Era. Um, he may not have had a lo- he may not have had a long wrestling career because of his ankle injury, but I really feel like he would have he would have made a difference um, heading into 1998 and beyond um, because his char- because this character was so controversial. I feel like honestly, had had they really pushed the envelope more with this with Terry Reynolds, the people would have started liking him. And, and reacting positively to him the same way they tried to make Steve Austin a heel. Uh, I can see that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think there's some there's some truth to that. And I mean, you know, aesthetically, you know, he's he's the dude who, you know, just the way he just his character was like his character was a psycho in some sorts of ways, but like he took the dude's girl, like. And the dude's girls with him, like, you know, I don't think people really see it as like what we would see it as now as being like sick and decrepit. Yeah. Um, so you kind of he won the girl, if you will. So I guess in that sense, on a very fundamental level, it does kind of endear him a little bit, you know, that this guy, you know, despite his flaws as a human, you know, is able to, to concoct this plan to, to get some pussy, basically, you know, yeah. Um, but uh, I think Pillman, like I said, I, mean, I think our, our disagreement on Pillman, I think, is that I, I think his his run in the Attitude Era would have just been very short-lived. Um, you know, maybe maybe another year he would have been there um, in an active capacity. Um, you know, he seems like a very driven, hungry talent who probably would have not settled for sitting behind a commentary desk 
or giving interviews, but I think at the very least they would have probably gotten at least one big match out of Steve Austin and him, you know, with Austin on top. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard not to argue that point either. Yeah, like I could see him have gone to, you know, in mid-summer 98 or whenever, saying, you know what, can I go to ECW? I'd like to go do some shit there. You know, I don't really, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll still call some of your, your, your shotgun Saturday nights or your Sunday night heats for you. But you know what? Like, I'll, can I go get some work in Philadelphia for a little bit? And, and that being like, oh, classic. <laughs> there. Um, I think that would, I think that sounds like more Pillman's, you know, modus operandi. Just like, you know what? I want to wrestle. You know, you may think I can't. I'm take. I'm doing, I'm good. I'm fine. But, uh. Just let me go wrestle for Paul Heyman, and I'll and I'll and I'll call your shows for you when you need me. Yeah, I I, I could see that as well. Um, being a uh, you know being the the fact that he you know had some history there, um, and it was kind and of the it was kind of do promotions as well. Yeah, he kind of you know unresolved. I guess you could say you know he he had left and um, after the car accident, or I think he was still there for a little while, but then WWF picked him up and. Um, but uh, you know, one thing I, I we forgot to mention was the relationship that Pillman had years prior to this with Terry Reynolds, uh, behind yes. the scenes, I guess, uh, when she was a makeup lady in WCW in the early '90s. Um, she she worked the makeup chair behind the scenes and uh, you know dressed up all the announcers. Tony Schiavone has talked about it on his podcast a number of times. You know the the friendly relationship that he had with her because of all the times he spent in the makeup chair. Um, right. And so uh, uh, you know I, I guess there is a little bit of that that was trickled into this story here with her and Pillman that kind of you know made it m- even more real. Um, or, or made you believe that it was more real, um, but you know, with, with Pillman, you know, getting the girl, um, which I thought was which I thought was an interesting touch. Um, and if I'm if if my memory serves me correct, um, I believe the blow off was, if I'm not mistaken, I heard the blow off for this was going to be had Pillman not died was that um, she was going to turn on him and and she was going to turn on Gold Dust. And, you know, it would be revealed that her and Pillman were in this thing all along. Um, yeah, and, I think I've heard that, too. They were going to, or they were, that, or like a Stockholm Syndrome thing where she would have just, you know, grown to fall in love with him and then basically get to that same point. But, yeah. But then I've also heard the other theory, too, was, was um, he was going to, Goldust was going to win and keep Marlena. Um but then she would kind of t- it would it would lead because of the, his time or her time with Pillman it would lead to Gold Dust turning heel um, because she had spent time with him and he kind of resented her even though he got her back he had still kind of resented her. Stridex pimple pads here um, never never had any of these as a kid never never uh, I mean I, I was full of acne but uh, mom, mom and dad never got me on the Stridex. Um, but but anyhow, yeah. Um, the, the 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 rumor I heard was was that Goldust was going to turn on her because he was disgusted with what she had become, even though she was forced to be with Pillman. Right. Yeah. Which you kind of um, which which is what we kind of saw after the fact. 
if you think about it, when Goldust had turned, um, they just didn't really mention Brian in name when he made that turn in that, that sit-down interview and, like, dumped her. Um, and then she would disappear for a while, and he would go on to become the artist formerly known as Goldust. Yeah, that, I feel like, was, was kind of... The obviously, his untimely death was what threw a wrench in it, but I feel like, ultimately, they were, it was... Goldust was still going to go that route, regardless. Like, yeah, they just had the story played out the way they the way they wanted to. He was still going to be the artist formerly known and kind of have that more, you know, scary, cringeworthy looking character. Yeah, he was kind of yeah. He the experience of his wife being with another man was going to take over him, and that's how he was going to you know kind of transform into that you know that that other persona. Um, yeah, just the whole identity crisis and just, you know, they, they really were playing up the, you know, daddy didn't love me yeah. type um, situation there and, and how that can manifest itself um, in real life. Obviously, they, they, they turn the volume up on that. Um, and then again, the, 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 the wife, you know, being gone for 30 days, that whole thing. I think all of that was, was still designed, and here comes Goldust now. Speaking all of that which. was still designed. It was there to personalize Goldust, and I think I think it was actually very well done in the sense that, um, you know, where they decided to go with it, you know, and mm-hmm. make him this fucking burnout, you know, act. He's like a, a teenager acting out. Look at a fan shoving Pillman. <laughs> like two fans just shoved Pillman as he was grabbing Marlena. He didn't bat a fucking eye. I think if you saw that today, you'd have the Seth Rollins of the world or whoever, just, you know, Bobby Lashley or whoever, they'd fucking tune somebody up. Yeah. But good on Pillman. I mean, that's just a different time. I like how, like, Goldust managed to get away from all those guys, and here we see Owen, he's celebrating his victory, his disqualification victory. Yeah, because he advances into the tournament. Um, (laughs) Let's play the audio for this. We're going to keep the audio on for this segment. If they were real cops, they'd have had him cuffed by now. Vince. 
understand? Don't you understand why you're not allowed to compete? You can't get that through your head? Don't you know why? Don't you know that you're not physically able to compete? Your doctors say you're not ready. If you compete, you can injure yourself for good. You can, you can wind up paralyzed. That'd be good. And the WWF is not going to stand by and let you do that to yourself. These people don't want you to wind up in a wheelchair. They want to see you compete. Everybody wants to see you compete. But in due time, Steve, in due time, listen to McMahon, get the violin. Get a hold of yourself. Tell the truth. Makes all the sense in the world. Hey, you better be talking to those guys over there. I said put him in a slammer. Listen. Don't you know? People care in the World Wrestling Federation. We care, they care. They care about you, that's all it is. And you just gotta go with it. In other words, in other words, you simply, you gotta work within the system. That's all you gotta do. It's simply working the system. I do that this is what I do for a living. This is all that I do, and can't nobody tell I, I ain't the best in the damn world. Don't even say nothing. Don't say nothing. Sit here and tell me to work within the system. You ain't the one sitting on your ass in the house like I am. But if, it's, if that's what it takes, to make you or the World Wrestling Federation happy, hell, I feel like Cool Hand Luke. I'll work within your stupid little system. That's all these people ask. I appreciate the fact that you and the World Wrestling Federation care. And I also appreciate the fact that, hell, you can kiss my ass. moment like that's probably if you you want to talk about Steve Austin's resume on his rise to the top in the WWF this would definitely be on there um, the the, uh, the the straw that, that stirred the drink, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, here stunning Vince McMahon um, inside Madison Square Garden uh, a, a classic moment everyone knew it was coming but when it came, it was even that much better. Yes. 
Absolutely. Um, the way this has kind of gotten built up over weeks' time, um, with you know the whole injury angle, not angle, the real injury that, that they used as an angle um, was 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 done to perfection. I think um, you know at a time when they could do it. I don't know if they could, you know, if they have the stones, if you will, or if they have the the you know other barriers in, in place that would prevent them from doing that but there was a real real palpable tension when it came to um to uh the fact that stone cold steve austin was being uh quote taken away from us if you will which um you know which was the resounding sentiment from uh, most of the wwe universe not myself i like i said i was not a stone cold fan at this point so i didn't really care which is, but now I can appreciate the, the moment, you know, and the impact it's had just based on, again, where Stone Cold came and how important this moment was. Now, let me ask you, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty. obviously this injury here really took a few years off of Steve Austin's in-ring career. I mean, he would, he would opt not to get any kind of surgery. And he would sit out for a few months, and he would work a limited schedule. He would still come to work. He would just wouldn't work the house show loops. Um, and he was still on TV, still being present because you know his rise to the top was, you know, evident. Um, and he didn't want to lose his spot, so to speak. Um, and then eventually he would ride through 1998, most of 1999 as the top guy and on fire. Um, before having to um, step away to get his neck repaired from the the accident with Owen Hart at, at SummerSlam uh, in August of 97. So what I'm asking here is, had that injury not occurred, you know, you, you figure, how many years you figure Austin would have had as a top guy? I mean... He, I don't know. Would, if he would, would, would he have burnt? Would he have? Would he have plateaued? Would, would, would he have? Would the fans have been burnt out by him? Like, I mean, I, I don't think. I don't think there is a top guy. I don't think he. I don't think he becomes Stone Cold Steve Austin as we know it for sure. Um, does he reach some level of success? Probably. Um, you know, they were entering the Attitude Era where, where more more stars were being developed and more talent was being, you know, put in in better positions, but. Do we get that? Do we get it at that level? I I don't think so. Okay. I just think you know, the right the right the right mix the right you know mix of chemicals and 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 circumstances in the place and was shook up correctly um, to make this this is you you can you couldn't capture this again nor you know in the fact that it was everything it was it, it just all fell into place perfectly. So, um, in many ways, the, the injury was a blessing in disguise for him. Yeah, uh, I would say so. I just don't, you know, it was part of the story. Like I said, you know, the injury allowed them to, to in the use of it in an angle, presented Vince McMahon in, in the beginning as somewhat of a, you know, less than desirable owner. On top of that, you know, that really showed, that was the catalyst for what, for people to get behind Steve Austin. Mm-hmm. Um you know, at a larger level, you know, the fact that he was, again, being being kind of managed and, and handled by the man and, and taken from us in, in the capacity we wanted him, um, yet it, there would have had to have been a more, another creative way to do that that would have been less organic. Yeah. And 
the organic nature that this all came together is what made it helped make Steve Austin what he became. So yeah, I don't we we don't we probably don't have the Steve Austin that we know if that neck injury doesn't happen. Okay, all right. Because I, mean, I mean, if you think about it, you know his run. I mean, the injury played a part in it, but his run essentially on top was you say ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, maybe two thousand and one. So like four years give or take, you know, some time off he took from from having yeah. the, the neck injury. So, that, you know, four years compared to other runs. Um, oh, who's this here? Oh, I know who this is. You remember Rhonda Shear when she used to do the USA Up All Night? She was the guest timekeeper yeah. at WrestleMania 10? Yes. That's her. That's her. Yeah, that's, that's her. She, look, she actually looks, you know, like a normal human being and not like a hooker like she did WrestleMania 10. Look at her. Wow. Anyhow, um, yeah, I mean, you, you, back to you know Austin here briefly. Um, most most of these runs from these top guys like a Hogan or um, you know Hogan had the longer run obviously because the company was much different back then and he you know he was able to sustain you know, more years. But I mean, in a short window of time, Austin you know made more money. Um, the company broke more records. But, you know, there were different avenue or revenue streams uh, from 1997 than it was in 1987. So um, I just I always wondered, like, damn, could Austin have had a few more years in ring um, as, as a I top guy? Have, yeah. I, I think he would have had a few more years in the ring. Yeah, his career could have probably gone longer than 2003 when he had his last match. Um, that's how debilitating that injury was. But, again, I don't think he reaches the heights that he does. Um, he doesn't transcend the business the way the way he did had, um, that, had that not happened. Yeah, for the lack of a better term, yeah, I don't think he does because, you know, you're talking about something that's once in a lifetime. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Generation. Yeah. So, and for it to happen that exact way, that's the result we got. So, if it ha- if like the butterfly effect, if... If he decides to have fucking a burrito that morning and that shit, and you know what I mean? And, and that saves his from a neck injury. Like who knows? Yep. Uh, so I think it, it just, it just happened exactly the way it did and brought us the result that it was going to bring and anything else that different along the way would have changed it. Um, you know, in terms of getting his ascension, you know, once he, once he got to like 98, there was no catching him, you know what I mean? No, no, no. He was he was doing laps but around everyone in, else. You yeah. know, in these night in this 1990, 90, late 96, 1997, you know, this was this was uh laying the foundation, obviously. So yeah. if anything had gone wrong along that way, it would we'd be looking at something very different. And here we're seeing the uh the which will eventually be the debut of Cactus Check. Let's play the audio for this real quick. Oh, man. What in the world? Drastic times call for drastic measures. 
that's a great line from JR. And uh, for me, this was like, this was such a cool moment because you mentioned it at the beginning of the show, how, you know, old time wrestling fans, you know, hardcore diehards like myself knew who Cactus Jack was. That's who I, that, that, that was the first character incarnation that Mick Foley had brought to life that I had watched. And I was just such a big Cactus Jack fan that when he came to the WWF as Mankind, Mankind had to grow on me because I was I, I was not thrilled that Cactus Jack was not a part of the WWF. Yeah. Um, I wasn't, I mean, I was, I was obviously, you know, I'm obviously a little bit younger than you, so my... My recollections of Cactus are really confined to like the magazines and like the tape tradings that you know we did on a small level. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I, like to me this was like ultra violent. You know, like the stuff he did before this, obviously. But Cactus Jack was you know crimson mask. You know, I had already heard the story about him and Vader and his ear getting ripped off. You know, the stuff with Terry Funk, all the stuff in Japan. Um, he was kind of like a mythical character in some respects. Yeah. Um, to the WWF he, audience. Yeah. Like I, like I knew about him through you and all that other stuff, but it was like, you still didn't really like, you always wondered like, Oh man, that'd be so cool. But you know, I guess not. And it was kind of like a, you weren't really sure if, if it was like a one-time thing when he came here or not, but it was, it was certainly a nice treat. Um, you know, I had hoped that like okay cool like now they're now he's cactus jack like he doesn't ha- have to be mankind anymore he doesn't have like no one thought in this level of he could be all these different people um that's the genius of it is the fact that after this he kind of bounced around with different personas i mean right but, but no one but at that time that was not something people were even considering no no you know, every yeah that, that, that you were one person you know what i mean oh yeah for, for an sure extended period of time yeah. So, like you said, that is the genius of it, um, which I think is why it got over. But like as a fan, you're kind of like, oh, finally this guy that has been talked about for years and years and years um, is here in the WWF. Like, you know, that's, it's it's awesome. Like, you know, he's finally found his way. Yes. Um, and you know, they did what they did with it, and you can't. It's hard to argue against it because, like I've said to you a million times. You know, the Attitude Era is Steve Austin, number one, The Rock, number two, and Mick Foley is number three. Oh, for sure. You know, and not, behind, not too far behind is Triple H, and, you know, The Undertaker is just in a different class, for sure. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 main, the main point scores were those top three dudes, and, um, you know, the fact that Foley was able to get life out of all, himself through all these different characters is, is again, not many, you know, <laughs> not many people do this. You know what I mean? You, you got one character, you stick to it, you put it over, and then you, and you, and you, and you ride it out. He had three, four characters if you include his, his himself, yes. Mick Foley. So, and if you think if you think fun. about it too, though, just like you mentioned it earlier, the 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 mythical character that Cactus Jack was to that WWF audience that really started in June of this year when they started producing those sit down interviews with Jim Ross and you were get to see some of the footage of you know what he did in Japan as Cactus Jack with the with the exploding death match and and the stuff with Terry Funk and of course the story that of his journey into the business under his real name, Mick Foley, and his training with Dominic DiNucci. So, in a sense, this this right here was the culmination of the background story behind Mick Foley. 
Yeah, and then don't forget a part of that story was hitchhiking all the way to Madison Square Garden, the yeah. building they're in right now. So there is a lot of um, sensical elements to this story that, again, like it almost led them to Cactus Jack. Yeah, you know what I mean. If, if not just for one night, like you know, be Cactus Jack tonight, Madison Square Garden. You know, with the weight of what that building means to us and to you as the person who who's been here countless times. So I think, yeah, it just like, I, you, this is why, you know, stories like that are why WWE is, they're the best at, at this genre. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't outright tell you something's fake. They don't outright tell you someone's supposed to win or someone is supposed to lose. Mm-hmm. They, they take those elements and they translate them to the world that we are believing exists. Yep. You know what I mean? We yeah. don't sit there and say, you know, someone doesn't come out and, you know, and cut a Vince Russo shoot promo that X wrestler was supposed to lose and I made it Y wrestler beat him or like fast forward to November and Vince McMahon's speech. Vince McMahon didn't sit here, you know, on in that interview and with Jim Ross and say, hey, you know, Bret Hart was supposed to lose the title. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I told Bret to lose and I, and I, he, there, it was more revealed, you know what I mean? Yep. You know, the language and the rhetoric, the scripting of it, if you will, was was done in a way that it wasn't, it didn't blow up the wall. You know yeah. what I mean? It didn't blow up the system. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you could believe that Vince was a bad character because of something he really did in real life, but he brought that action and that sentiment in a way that didn't, that didn't uh, ruin the whole show. Mm-hmm. Didn't take you out of it. And I think this going back to Cactus and that Mick Foley story, like, you know, even more brilliantly done because now you're asking, you got to play multiple characters and you want to know how and why that guy got to that mindset where he's a split personality, if you will. And, you know, the stuff about jumping off the friend's garage and, you know, wanting to be a heartthrob and eating worms as a kid and just being like kind of a loser, like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense why that guy would, you know, toil around in a boiler room with rats and pull his hair out and associate with Paul Bear and do all the things that he does. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. It all made sense, but yeah. it wasn't made, like, he wasn't, it wasn't uh, blatantly described in a way that, like, they weren't telling you how the sausage was made. Yeah. I think, you know, also, too, that, like, we didn't, we haven't really discussed. Um, I think a lot of what we've seen in this episode, I think, is, Obviously, you know, due in part to the stories that they were presenting, you know, like like we talked about with the culmination with Austin stunning Vince, the culmination of, you know, the the, the Cactus Jack reveal in Madison Square Garden. But I think what also plays a part into a lot of this, and I don't think this was done originally by design on a long-term level, was the fact that this, this show took place the day after... A WCW pay-per-view. There was the Fall Brawl, the War Games, and that was the particular War Games where um, where uh, Kurt Henning joined the NWO and they did the the, the, the turn and then they slammed the the, the door on, on Ric Flair's face, the cage door. Um, yep. I think a lot of that, a lot of where this you know the 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 story arcs um, are displayed have a lot to do with. WCW and the momentum that they had as an organization and pretty much anything they did, you know, from a ratings perspective, they were on fire. 
You couldn't touch yeah. them. You know what I mean? Even if the content wasn't the best, people were still tuning in. You know, even though Raw yeah. may have had the better show at the time. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, the, the, the combination of the, the Cactus Jack story, the Steve Austin story, them being in Madison Square Garden, the New York City is their strongest market by this point um, to, to, to produce a, a show of this magnitude. You know, I think WCW and their momentum had a lot to do with how this show played out. And this was also, mind you, and this wasn't and this wasn't done by design on WCW's effort. This was the, um, the on the other channel. Goldberg made his debut on Nitro this same night. That was the same night. Yes. Really? Yes. Okay. The night after Fall Brawl. Wow. Yeah. It's funny, it's funny you mention that because you had said that this was the this night was the night after the Fall Brawl because I vividly remember watching because Nitro was on. Was it on earlier at this point? Right, Nitro, Nitro was eight o'clock, and and yes. Raw was nine. I remember watching the, you know, having been interested in that angle. Yeah, Kurt Henning and the Four Horsemen. That was so cool. That sounded so cool and so right. Yep. Um, and not seeing that turn coming, and oh, I wonder what happened because we didn't order the Fall Brawl show. So I remember no. going like, okay, like all right, I want to know what happened in that. You know, you actually thought that someone stood a chance against the NWS. So I remember like wanting to tune in to see what happened with that match. And the first thing they show you is the, is Ric Flair's face on the operating table. Yeah. Yeah. On the, with, with, with the markers and like the, where they were going to do surgery on him. Yeah. And, and they show the slow-mo of his head getting slammed into the cage. And you're like, Holy shit. Like, and I don't want to say it, I, it didn't turn me off. Like, in a like I was pissed. Like, Oh my God, I'm never watching this again. But I was kind of like, why the fuck would Kurt Henning join the NWO? Like, and and and, and I was kind of like, ah, like, jeez, like now Ric Flair's gonna have to go beat him up, or you know, Arn Anderson or whoever. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it, it had a like a negative connotation well done, to it. Say. say it again. It was like a negative connotation to the to the idea that he was in the NWO. I was a, yeah, like I said, he fit in the Four Horsemen, so I thought it was perfect. So I guess I mean that's the that, that's getting heat. Like I get that now. So, but I, it's funny. Like again, I I distinctly remember that less so than I do Goldberg's debut, which probably happened not too long after that moment. Um, yeah, so it was, think it was, that, I think I think that took place in the first hour, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I probably watched it. Yeah, I'm gonna gather that I watched that before Raw turned on because that's typically what we did. Yeah, we watched um, the first hour of Nitro because it was unopposed, and then when Raw came yeah. on, we would turn on Raw and we would just basically flip flop and and and, and, right. and channel surf. So, so yeah, that's interesting. That that uh, that also happened at the same time as this Raw. Um, another moment. They already showed this though earlier. Andre that's, slamming uh, uh, Big John yeah. Stud. Yeah, but, but with that all said. Um, you know, again, it's still a momentous raw because they were really they 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 had moved Austin up the ladder. Um, Cactus Jack was a good moment for the crowd and really kind of completed that story. And if you think about it, you know, Triple H Hunter Hearst Hunley was Hunter Hearst Hunsley was on his way up with his newfound Shawn Michaels Association. Yeah. Um, Shawn and Taker was was climbing. Um, and you know, then the other stuff kind of just had its role. So yeah, this was like, in terms of like, you know, things may not be the most entertaining. Things may not be the most flashy. 
And I think that's what a lot of people look at in terms of quality on a show. But, like, they had a lot of objectives and boxes to check throughout this night. And they, they did a lot. You know what I mean? And when you think about it in the long term, it, it was a lot of a lot of big things happened here. So this is a very well-executed show. Oh, also. for sure. And it's funny that you you, you just run down the, the checklist of, of monumental moments that took place on this episode of Raw. And you forgot to, well, I don't know if you forgot to mention or if because it was because of the way the show is structured, but the WWF champion, Bret the Hitman Hart, doesn't make your, your, your checklist in, as front, far as... in front of the camera. You know what I mean? As far as, mo- yeah. as far as big moments, you know what I mean? You said, you know, Cactus Jack debut, the Austin McMahon story, um, the, 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 the Sean Taker stuff was really rolling with Hunter Hearst Helmsley in that newfound association. Brett was the champion at this time. And Brett was, didn't even, and you're a Brett guy, and Brett didn't even make your, your checklist of, 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 mo- of monumental moments on this show. That's, to me, that, that's, that's definitely telling as to where he stood in the pecking order. Yeah, and I mean, that speaks to, obviously, the conversation that took place. Um, you know, because much of it had to do with the fact that Vince McMahon had prioritized his lineup in a way that Brett was kind of left holding the bag. Um, odd man out. Um, so, yeah. But at the same time, I think, I'm going to gather, you know, on a sidebar that Brett um, appeared in front of the live crowd. Brett was on the show. Right. Well, yeah, but I mean, in terms of, like, he probably wrestled, I think. He did. He wrestles Goldust in the main event of this show. Oh, right, right, right. I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah. um, But, like, it was, like, him as the champion wrestling in the main event in a very, like, non-descript match is, like, like you said, like, okay. Like, I, I don't think it, uh, like, everything Everything else was, like, it was put in the main event because he's the champion. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But it didn't mean anything. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was no, there was no, yeah, there was no substance behind it. They just, it was just advertised. Which sometimes, right. which we've talked about before. There's nothing wrong with, with, with doing an angle or doing a, 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 you know, putting together a match between two guys to wrestle each other with, with no story behind it. In a sense, like, that is the story about trying to win the wrestling match yeah Um, it can also speak to at least from a you know live event standpoint you know let's just put him on the show because he's the champion in the main event defending the title and that's good enough yeah yeah no yeah that's yeah that's a good point that's probably that probably is some of the logic at least from a big picture standpoint um but if you think about it in this era like or at this time between this between here in Montreal, like Brett really wasn't. Brett was second fiddle. Yeah, after Sean, basically Brett won the belt at SummerSlam, defeated Undertaker. That should have been a bigger moment, but because Sean was a part of that and Sean had such an integral role in 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 that finish, you're right. Brett had to play second fiddle, and also too, they were putting their eggs in Austin's basket even after he got hurt. So, yeah, right. it's it's. It, it, it almost makes you, it almost makes you, it almost makes you wonder, you know, how long Vince was preparing to have this talk with Brett. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I, like I think Brett, I think I think they were they were building to what was the first of its kind Hell in a Cell match. Like they had this plan to get Sean over the Undertaker that they wanted to get. 
get through. And it was that that theme was good stuff. Oh yeah, it was great, you know, especially in the fall. So like, you know, Sean Sean and DX, what became DX, you know, outshined Brett and the Heart Foundation. To me, that actually turned Brett babyface because you also knew that them two were going to collide at some point. Oh yeah, it was a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Um, but so it's, it's funny that like Brett looks at it like, oh well, like. Why, you know, I'm not the top heel. I'm not the top. It's like, where am I? I'm lost in the shuffle. And for my money, as a Brett fan, I didn't, I looked at him as a babyface. I looked at him as the top babyface. Yeah, I guess he, he lost Otter, but he was the champion and he was Bret Hart. So he was kind of on that, like, legendary level because of what Bret had done at that point. That I didn't look at it as a young fan as he's lost. He's the champ. You know what I mean? See, but as a, from a, as, as a fan... Growing up back then, you know, you know, I was I got a few years on you. Um, you know, Bret Hart did such a tremendous job getting America to hate him that I felt like it was hard for him to come back and be a good guy. You know, Sean did a great job being a bad guy in his role. You know, in in costing Undertaker the match at SummerSlam, which you know their stuff, like you said, it was really good stuff. But I felt. <clears throat> With Undertaker and Steve Austin kind of at the top of the babyface mountain, like where does Bret Hart fit in? I did feel like it was hard for him to come back to being a good guy because he did such a great job getting America to hate him. In so, hindsight, funny that's exactly how I feel now. Like he had we gone to like this point of no return. Yeah, with his with his character, where it would it, he would have needed a a larger transformation, um, which apparently he didn't seem up for. If you think about it, no. Um, based on the direction the company was going, um, he didn't seem to be up for that, um, and uh, I think that's what kind of left him out of the shuffle. Taker was transforming. Sean was transforming. Hunter was transforming. You know, Cactus. You know, there were there were players that they had that were 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 transforming, and I don't want to say Brett was stubborn in that sense, but he obviously had creative differences that. Even as a fan, you kind of knew, like, attitude era-wise, like, he wasn't, like, he, he was still too white meat for what was happening all around him. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say this. Before Montreal, you know, after after this Raw, as we see DX putting a, you know, what would be DX putting a, a beating on Undertaker, um, I there were, there were moments in the build-up to Survivor Series where I started to... F- where that's where I started to feel like Brett and the Hart Foundation could fit in as baby faces. And I kind of thought we would have seen them against the nation because they did that angle where um, it would turn out that DX trashed the nation's locker room and they would blame it on the Hart Foundation. Like the pink spray paint and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, the, leaving the Canadian flag in there and all that other stuff. And then there was a particular episode, that same episode of Raw, the nation would call out, I believe, the Hart Foundation. And the Hart Foundation would appear on stage, but it was like they just got there. Like they were late to the building, you know? So, right. it, it, and, and, but I remember the pop that it got. And I was like, okay, maybe the fans are starting to like Brett again, you know? Right. So, and then I thought to myself, okay, maybe they're just going to turn Brett into a good guy again, you know? But for me, I needed some kind of closure. Like, is he going to apologize to the American fan base that, you know, as to, uh, you know, how he treated them going forward? Like, if it's going to be him and Sean and everyone hates Sean, 
Well, they got to like Brett. You know what I mean? So is Brett going to get yeah. that kind of like, you know, that redemption, so to speak? Like, is he going to like... That's kind of how I felt too, as a fan. Um, is he going to apologize for his sins, so to speak? Like, that that's where I was kind of like... Part, that so, part never crossed my mind. Yeah. The other part about redemption and like, he had kind of been usurped by DX. And remember, he still let the loss to Shawn Michaels over a year ago hanging over his head. Yeah. So... You know, everything to me, from a storyline perspective, if we're going to go book Montreal, like, Brett winning made the most sense. Yeah. From the standpoint of, like, he needed to get some heat back. Yeah. For, for what had happened in the months leading up to with DX and the Hart Foundation to obviously losing to Sean the year prior. Yeah. Like, and, and I'm not going to work, you know, this isn't an argument for, you know, Brett's vision of Montreal, but in terms of, you know, or the the, the, the screw job aspect of the from, from a storyline perspective, it it was a, most appropriate if there wasn't the WCW contract issues. It was most Bret Hart probably would have run, should have won that match in my opinion. Yeah, no, like I'm kind of I'm kind of right there with you. If Bret Hart doesn't have that, that conversation with Vince McMahon on the the, the the day of this show, you know, Bret Hart to me logically with everything that was happening here, would have won. Yeah, I no, I, won. I agree. And I think I think eventually, you know, like you said, that this conversation will happen. Brett wins Survivor Series, and then they have their rubber match, whether that's at Royal Rumble or whether that's at the next WrestleMania. Um, right. Who, who knows? But I feel like it would have been like a series of matches, you know, WrestleMania 12, Survivor Series 9, you know, 1997 and then maybe you could just make an argument, you know, Royal Rumble for Hahas sure. because because obviously Austin was so fucking red hot after the the stunning angle that to me I you could make a strong argument and I don't know this for sure, but you could make a strong argument that after this angle they realized, well, we got to put Austin in the main event at WrestleMania. Austin's the guy. That, that dare I, I mean could you, could you? I would. I would agree. I yeah. would agree that that he was the guy next to be elevated. Um, I think maybe in Vince's mind, it was who's that guy that's going to do it. Like you know, and I think the fact that Brett and Austin had already had a run may have already played into that. Like we've already turned Brett heel. He's already had a monster heel run through '97 with Austin, um, having great matches. Um, I need something else, and Sean was appetizing that with all the shit he was doing every week that made him probably the lead candidate for that. Yeah. On top of the picture of where Brett stood in the future. Yep. Because, and like you had said, Brett was kind of squeezed out. Brett was kind of lost in the shuffle by this point. Um, and really was just in many ways, a transitional champion, even though you believe that he should have been the champion longer, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's, but yeah, all signs probably pointed to Steve Austin at this point. By September twenty second, nineteen ninety seven, is Steve was probably the guy they were going with. I didn't realize that as a fan. Like I said, I didn't no, realize no, Steve no, this is all hindsight. until probably the you know November tenth, nineteen ninety seven, the day after Montreal is when I was looking for who's next. Yeah, yeah, I, I think yeah. In hindsight, I mean, you got you know as we're talking about this, you got to figure he was he was the guy that they were looking to anoint at WrestleMania. Um, just question is whether that was 
Brett to do that or whether that was Sean. And judging by the conversation that Brett and Vince had before this show, um, you can make the uh, you can make the argument that Vince probably looked at Sean as that guy. Um, you know, I, I here here's what I've always wondered. Um, you know, Vince has this conversation with Brett before this show and gives him the option to negotiate a deal with, with Eric Bischoff and WCW. Um, he can't pay Brett the money that he's he's owed him or he owes him um, in his contract. That was like some massive 20-year deal, but it was like tiered up. So it was like five years at this and then another f- like 15 years at this in, in a consulting role. Um, I've always wondered... Was WC was him was him offering Brett the chance to negotiate with WCW the first option, or was he holding out hope, or did he throw an option out there as like we want to keep you but we can't pay you at this, so what kind of compromise do we can we come up with? Because we've all, we've, all, we've always heard the narrative that like the first you know he can't pay Brett this, so I'm gonna let you go to WCW here. I'll help you get I'll help you get a good deal. I've always wondered, has he ever gone... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, that's, that appears to be, like you said, the, the, the idea that... That's what it sounds like. It sounds like they were um, going to restructure a contract or whatever, and maybe there was... You know, maybe that's... I mean, who knows why they decided not to do that, maybe because of how much of an issue it was to put together that contract or whatnot. But it didn't... It doesn't appear that that was an option. That, you know, that... And I think that might have been just. I I happen to think that might be have a lot to do with Vince's preference of Sean over Brett. Do you and th- just do where you, Brett think, fit into the landscape? Do you think Brett and Sean's issues played a part in that? Vince was like, I can't take much more of this, so I got I got I got to choose one, and that and that's why he kind of threw that I don't out know there. Any, I don't know if the, the their personal slash professional rivalry had anything to do with that. Um, I just think he was looking at the long-term picture and saying, okay, like, Bret Hart doesn't fit into where I want, where this is going. And mind you, what's probably helping answer that question for him is Sean and what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So I think, and we're, and I think in this show, in this episode, you're seeing it happen in real time. Like, Bret's just not the guy that he wants. Mm-hmm. Um and you see that throughout the fall with his lack of featured exposure, um, and Sean. It. So I think that I think that just based on where things were going and what was happening and who was putting in work, that Brett was still being the Bret Hart that we always knew and loved. Everyone else was finding new ways to acclimate to a new climate. I just find it hard to believe that that. Vince, especially during this time period where, you know, the narrative was is he he felt that, you know, it was a full court press by Turner and WCW on him. And, you know, J- Jim Ross has, has illustrated it on a number of his podcasts over the years when the subjects come up that him and Vince have had conversations about filing for bankruptcy, that the company was in such, as, as they've put it, financial peril. Um, right. I just find it hard to believe that Vince didn't see any value in Brett, you know, it 
not, I wouldn't say a reduced role, but not in a, like, not in a, in, in as featured of a role as, as someone like a Steve Austin. I, I just find it hard to believe that he wouldn't see someone like Brett who's put in his time, who was a building block in an era, in, 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 in an era where um, the company was not in, you know, their, their, their best years financially during the new generation era. And I, I just really have a hard time believing that he didn't see Brett for, you know, have, having some value, even if it's even if it's to help build the future of the company right. with guys. You know what I mean? Let's say, for instance, like a Ken Shamrock or even a Kane who would, you know, debut a few weeks after this. You know, I just find it hard to believe that, that he didn't look at Brett and say, well, how can we still have him and utilize him while building towards the future? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I just, I don't know. I just... Well, I, I, I totally, I totally pick up what you're putting down. I think, I think that has a lot to do with Bret Hart and what Bret Hart saw for himself. Um, you know, Bret Hart wasn't, I think, ready to make those concessions yet. Still felt that he was owed his his time, his run. Um, and I think that because of that, like, you look at the financial aspect and, and Vince probably felt, you know what, well, yeah, we're, we're, we're not doing great right now and I can't really afford to pay you and you don't really fit well in here um, where we want you. Or you don't really, you know, why would I pay you so much money to be, you know, job in the gold dust? You know yeah. what I mean? Or on top of that, I think you could also argue that based on, again, the success of just even this show alone, that Vince McMahon was like, he had, he had the next six to eight months planned out. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And he was, he was already putting his, his, his pieces in place yeah. and that he knew, all right, we're going to scale this back. We're going to cut our costs a little bit, cut some expenses and we're going to run a very tight ship with some young, hungry, young, hungry talent. Mm-hmm. And, we're better than these guys, and it's going to show. Yeah, you know, we're going to outlast WCW. Yeah, Hulk Hogan can't. You know, Hulk Hogan's towards the end. Roddy Piper, he's he's hanging on. Ric Flair, he's he's seen better days. Yeah, you know, they don't they haven't made any stars. We're going to go make stars, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to do it at a bargain. And Brett Brett's Brett's money's really a sag on our payroll. Yeah. And again, I'd rather not put him in a position where he's got a be wrestling gold dust on, on shotgun Saturday night for the rest of his career. And I'm going to be giving up how much money for that. See, and I, then again, Brett's creative vision for himself, I think has a lot to do with it too. Brett Hart wasn't interested in probably doing that either. No, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure he thought, you know, of bigger things of himself, um, you know, during this time period and moving forward. Um, you know, obviously in hindsight, you can, Play, you know, Monday morning quarterback, and 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 do all the what ifs and and uh, you know, um, map out the trajectory of someone like Bret Hart had he not gone to WCW. Um, you know, th- this thought has come to me over the course of you know time. Um, Bret Hart as Vince McMahon's corporate champion or the representative of a corporate champion um, in the height of Austin's rise, you know, Austin's run as the WWF champion following WrestleMania 14. So um, I don't know. I just kind of picture like Bret kind of being that guy for Vince at that time, like in late 90, you know, mid, you know, middle of 98 after WrestleMania, Austin beat Sean and, 
Vince brings Brett back as his corporate champion, the guy that he you know wants to to represent his company. Now, does that happen with or without the screw job? You know what I mean? Because if there was no screw job, there would be no Mr. McMahon character. Um, yeah, and then we're talking about a whole different world, which you know, going back to the neck injury, if the screw job don't happen, we don't get the Steve Austin that we get. Correct. Yeah. Like probably even more so than the neck injury, but the neck injury was like an escalation, or excuse me, the screw job was like an escalation to the neck injury in terms of Mr. McMahon's development. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. it was like it was real and it was authentic, and then it was translated into the confines of your television screen, where it wasn't blatantly said like, "Oh, like Brett lost. I I control the outcomes." Mm-hmm. You know, I I decide who wins and loses. That wasn't said. That was just implied. Yeah. Because if it was said, it would have been like, okay, then coming up next, Nation of Domination against Bad Bangers. Well, <laughs> Vince just told us he, you know, Vince just told us he he controls the outcome. So why the fuck should I care about, you know, like that? Is, that is fake. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, 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 yeah. That's why. That's why they're the best at this genre because they don't. They don't. They don't shoot. No. You know, they work. Even when it's a work shoot, it's still a work. Yep. Um, and they don't sit there and, and draw out and, and, you know, how many times did Vince Russo do it to death thinking it was cool and trendy? Like, it, it's he was able to tighten it up. It, you know, Vince McMahon tightens it up in WWE versus anywhere else where it's like, okay, dude, that was a little clunky. That was a little, eh, okay. Like, it just didn't really work the way you wanted it to. See a uh, pretty cool shot there. Undertaker choke slamming both Brett and Shawn Michaels to close out this episode of uh, Monday Night Raw. This was a lot of fun. I uh, I'm, I'm glad you you uh, you you uh, you picked this show for us to watch. Hopefully everyone listening uh, watched along with us and had fun too. If not, I hope you had fun just listening to us and uh, go back and forth regarding our opinion. Uh, thank you so very much for uh, joining me over the phone. Um, Absolutely. We got, we got one more to go. Next week, uh, we're going to be talking about missed opportunities and some of the wrestling's biggest dream matches of all time. What's a retro pro wrestling podcast without talking about dream matches? I mean, come on now, you know, like I got to dip my toe in the water at this point. And you brought this subject up and we're going to talk about it next week. Some of the uh, missed opportunities of some of wrestling's biggest dream matches. Why don't you give uh, the listeners a little preview as to, you know, what we could expect next week? Um, it's kind of basically the premise of, of, of the ideas, you know, amongst hardcore fans, fans on the Internet, social media for years and years, there's matches that have been bantered about, rumored about by Dave Meltzer or, you know, those within the halls of Titan Towers as matches that they've tried to, rumored to have tried to get into the ring and, 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 and make some money off of and, and really give the fans those that, those talked about fantasy matches. Um, and these are matches that ultimately never materialized on any grand scale that they deserve. So um, this isn't necessarily a fantasy match card, but more so just uh, matches that we've heard about in dark, quiet places that have been talked about that ultimately never made it to the ring. Um, How and why, you know, we can banter all about them. So looking forward to doing that. And so am I. And uh, hopefully you all are looking forward to that next week as well. Uh, And I think it's officially about that time that we put this show down for the three count. And we will see you all next week.